This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. My name is Harry Helling, and I'm the Executive Director of the Birch Aquarium at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UC San Diego. I'd like to welcome you all to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science webinar series. This year, we are organizing these webinars into themed mini-series showcasing our world-class research here at Scripps. Tonight, we embark on a three-talk series exploring climate change impacts in California and delving into the science behind how climate change is impacting our lives. And this talk is perfectly timed as a very strong atmospheric river just passed through California this past week. It is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker in this series, Dr. Sasha Gershinoff. Sasha is a research meteorologist at Scripps and a member of the Climate Atmospheric Science and Physical Oceanography Department. He is affiliated with several large federally funded programs, including the California and Nevada Climate Applications Program, the Southwest Climate Science Center, the Center for Western Water and Weather Extremes, and the San Diego Climate Education Partnership. Sasha is the perfect person to launch this series. As a meteorologist, Sasha's research is focused broadly on understanding the links between regional weather extremes and large-scale climate variability. More specifically, Sasha's work in this field is most often aimed at understanding climate trends and weather events that have direct impact on people, especially those of us here on the west coast of California. These include phenomena such as precipitation and drought, atmospheric rivers, Santa Ana winds, heat waves, climate impacts on wildfire, and many more topics too numerous to list. In brief, Sasha has dedicated his career to regionally relevant climate research that benefits society, ranging from climate impacts on human health to resource management to engaging the public in science, especially through the arts. Sasha, welcome. We are all looking forward to your talk entitled, The Art and Science of Atmospheric Rivers and the Changing Hydroclimate of the West. Thank you, Harry. It's uh, great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is actually written Alexander, but it's pronounced Sasha, because Sasha is nicknamed for Alexander, where I come from, and they speak like this, in this very large and aggressive country. But I've been um, living in California since I was 12 years old, and uh, I'm going to talk uh, with you about uh, the hydroclimate of California and the Western United States. Um, I am uh, a statistician and a meteorologist by training, and I think most of you know what a meteorologist is. All of you probably do, and for those of you who don't know what a statistician is, it's somebody who doesn't have enough personality to become an accountant. But that is actually what makes me a climatologist, because climate is the statistics of weather. Um, and uh, I like to study uh, how regional weather patterns and extreme weather events are related to climate variability and climate change. Um, how to use those relationships to, to predict uh, weather and climate better. Uh, and also, I'm very interested more and more in the impacts of uh, uh, extreme weather events that we study on uh, society. 
I've been working at Scripps uh, for now 24 and a half years, and uh, nowadays I work with this delightful group. We call ourselves uh, We Klima, or We Klima, or however you'd like to pr pronounce it, but basically we're the Weather Extremes and Climate Impacts Analytics. These are the weather extremes and the topics that, that we work on, um, basically ranging from uh, heat waves and how they're modulated by marine layer clouds at the coast, um, fire weather, Santa Ana winds, and downslope winds in general, droughts and floods, and also very much so with atmospheric rivers. And this is in collaboration with the, the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes, CW3E, which is devoted to the study of atmospheric rivers. Today, I am going to focus on the role of atmospheric rivers in the hydroclimate of the West. But I should start with uh, what is so special about the hydroclimate of the West, basically the, the, the climate of water in the West. And uh, um, I'll talk about the atmospheric component of it, precipitation. And so this plot here shows, this plot here shows the stations that uh, have recorded uh, three-day episodes of rain totaling over 40 centimeters, 15 inches, in uh, three days or less. You can see that uh, since 1950, uh, the frequency of these very extreme events uh, is pretty low, and a lot of them occur in the southern, southeastern United States and along the Gulf Coast, and that's mostly hurricane-related precipitation. But in California, we have more than our share of these uh, super strong rainfall events, um, and they're produced by atmospheric rivers, typically. Uh, and uh, you can see what one of those events looks like, uh, in this case, in the South Yuba River. What's really interesting about the hydroclimate of, of California is how variable it is or how volatile it is. So this plot on the left, what this shows is, is the standard deviation of annual precipitation divided by the mean annual precipitation. So this is basically how variable the annual precipitation is relative to the mean annual precipitation, the climatology of precipitation. And basically what you see here in the eastern United States um, are values between 0.1 and 0.2, so that's basically between 10 and 20 percent um, of um, total annual normal precipitation is what we get in terms of variability. So from year to year, uh, the total annual precipitation in, in the eastern U.S. typically varies about 10 to 20 percent of what the normal annual precipitation is. As, as we go towards the west, that number increases in the Great Plains. You see values of between 20 and 30 percent um, of year-to-year uh, -year variability relative to total annual precipitation. 
And then in California, and especially in Southern California, in the desert regions, which get very little precipitation actually, or very infrequent precipitation, um, we see values of up to uh, 60 and uh, 70% of total annual precipitation. You know, basically year to year, we it, it's typical to get values of uh, about 60% in the southern deserts uh, along the coast of uh, uh, South and Central California. Uh, we get about 40 to 50% variability, year-to-year -year variation compared to the annual total. Uh, and uh, slightly less than that in Northern California. But basically, California is an extremely volatile region in terms of water resources. It's typical that, that we have uh, drought years followed by flood years, uh, and even uh, when we actually get floods during a drought year, like we are uh, today, as a matter of fact. Uh, here is another plot that, that shows uh, the, the number of hours. These are stations with hourly resolution. So the number of hours that are required to generate half of the annual normal total precipitation. Uh, and you can see again that uh, here in Southern California, we are somewhere uh, in the range of 20 to 40 hours uh, that are required to generate our total annual precipitation. Or in other words, we get uh, about 50%, half of our total annual precipitation, typically in about 20 to 40 hours worth of rain. Um, in Northern California, where it rains more frequently, uh, it's, uh, you know, in the range of about 80 to 100 or 120 hours. But this is a very short amount of time that's required to generate um, half of our total annual precipitation. In fact, Thanksgiving of 2019, when we had a very strong atmospheric river, uh, we actually generated about a quarter of our total annual precipitation in uh, two days, and half of that came in one hour. Uh, this is measured on my rooftop. Not surprisingly, because so much of our precipitation is generated in these extreme bursts of rain. Uh, it's, it's really these extreme events that drive the interannual and longer term variability of our hydroclimate. So, for example, uh, this map uh, from Mike Dedinger and Dan Cahan shows the smoothed variability of year-to-year -year total annual water year precipitation uh, in uh, Northern California. And um, the red line here shows the precipitation that falls in the 5% of the wettest days. So you can notice how closely these lines track each other. And basically uh, what it says is that it's, it's these extreme precipitation events that really drive the year-to-year -year variability of our hydroclimate. Uh, and then all the other uh, 
precipitation events that are sort of uh, medium intensity, medium and low intensity, their year-to-year variability is not very related to the total uh, amount of precipitation that we get. It's really the extremes that drive our hydroclimate and our water resources. So let's zoom out and see what do the climate models actually project for the future of precipitation around the globe. What this shows is the average of about 30 global climate models um, and uh, its precipitation projected for the late 21st century, the last 30 years of the 21st century, minus the last 30 years of, of the 20th century. And so this is really uh, projected precipitation change. And where we see these dots here, uh, we, uh, those dots basically signify the locations where most of the models, two-thirds of the 30 models that went into this analysis, agree on the sign of the change. And um, uh, green colors indicate increases in precipitation by uh, this much. Uh, basically, you know, in, in high latitudes, precipitation is projected to increase by about 25 to 30%. Uh, similarly, a lot around the equator, where the trade winds converge a lot of the moisture. And then there are these regions where precipitation is projected to decrease. And if you look at these regions closely, you see at least over land, these are basically the Mediterranean uh, climate regions. Here's the Mediterranean basin, the Western Cape of South Africa, uh, parts of Australia, a part of Chile, all regions where wine grapes prefer to grow because they prefer that Mediterranean climate, which basically means that most of the precipitation is generated by winter storms uh, and summers are dry and mild. Now, California is very definitely a Mediterranean climate region. However, it's an exception. And um, according to the global climate models, we, we can't really be sure how precipitation is going to change here because we don't really see, we don't, we don't see a clear change. Uh, and, and obviously the models don't agree. So what is going on? Is it really the case that we cannot say anything about how precipitation is going to change uh, in California? Well, uh, we've uh, looked at these different uh, regions, basically five major Mediterranean climate regions around the world. Um, and uh, here we basically zoom in onto the same result. The previous result showed uh, total water year precipitation. This result just shows the peak of the wet season in, in the case of uh, the northern hemispheric uh, Mediterranean climate regions. That would be December, January, and February. Uh, and uh, you can see that in all of these regions, the strongest decrease 
of precipitation occurs on the equatorward side of the region. And California is no exception. California is, except, is exceptional in that now that, that we're looking at the peak uh, of the wet season, we're, we're actually seeing uh, some uh, wetting in, in Northern California and basically uh, no change in, in Southern California. But if we looked at the whole year, like I showed in the previous plot, we actually, um, uh, we actually don't see any change at all when we look at total annual precipitation and when we uh, parse precipitation out by these regions here and the different models, uh, we see that, uh, that in all of these regions except for California, all of the models or practically all of the models go dry, whereas in California, some of the models project wetter conditions and some of the models project drier conditions. So what is going on? Obviously, precipitation is an episodic variable, you know, either it rains or it doesn't. So there's a frequency involved here. Uh, and of course, there is an intensity. So what we did here was to parse out these changes in precipitation by, by intensity bins. So for example, uh, here is a bin uh, of dry days no precipitation uh, and you can see that in most of these regions um, the frequency of dry days increases so obviously the frequency of uh, precipitating days decreases and it decreases in a very specific pattern uh, so drizzle here this is precipitation uh, intensity below the 10th percentile so the 10 percent of the of the weakest precipitation events, call that drizzle. Uh, don't change that much. But basically, as you go higher and higher in intensity, low intensity, medium intensity precipitation, you see very uh, clear decreases in the frequency of middle of the road precipitation events. But as you go uh, to higher intensities, Here's the heavy precipitation above the 90th percentile. So 10%, the 10% the of the heaviest events, uh, they increase in frequency in California, but not in the other regions. And then when we go to the extreme precipitation above the 99th percentile, so the 1%, the most extreme precipitation, daily precipitation events, we see a huge increase by more than twice uh, the historical frequency in, in the future uh, climate projections by the end of this century, specifically in California and to a, to a smaller extent in the Mediterranean basin as well. So it's basically in the two northern hemispheric Mediterranean climate regions, we do see an enhancement from climate change of the most extreme precipitation events. And this enhancement is much stronger in California in the other uh, regions, in the southern hemispheric Mediterranean climate regions, we actually do not see a change in extreme precipitation events when the middle of the road precipitation event frequency decreases. So in all cases, uh, the models project, and they very much agree on this, two different, uh, two competing 
signals. One is a decrease in overall precipitation, uh, and uh, the other one is, is an increase in extreme events, specifically in California. Uh, but in the other regions, uh, you know, because the other, freak, the other intensities of precipitation decrease, but not the most extreme events, then uh, in all of these regions, future precipitation regime or hydroclimate uh, is projected to, to rely more and more on extreme events. So what are the types of storms that are responsible for most of the extreme events in California? They are uh, atmospheric rivers. And uh, what, what we see on this, uh, on this map here is a snapshot from satellite on a particular day of uh, total precipitable water. This is basically the amount of water vapor uh, that is in the atmosphere. It's called precipitable water because, uh, you know, if you condense all of that water and let it precipitate, that's how much, uh, that's how much rain uh, would come down. So it's basically the amount of moisture in the atmosphere. And you can see that uh, the highest amounts of moisture occur in the tropics. That's where uh, it's warm. Uh, that's where the trade winds converge. Uh, moisture evaporated from the ocean uh, into uh, the so-called intertropical convergence zone where it then convects in deep convective clouds. Obviously, a lot of the rainfall in the world occurs uh, in the, these tropical regions. Uh, and then there is a deficit of moisture, of course, where it's colder. And we know uh, that the amount of water vapor that can be in the atmosphere depends for the most part on temperature as well. So atmospheric circulation, basically uh, in the global sense, it's, uh, it's a engine that moves heat, moisture, momentum from the tropics to the high latitudes. And a lot of the moisture is actually being moved out of the tropics and into the mid and high latitudes by these thin filaments of very moist, near saturated and very windy conditions called atmospheric rivers. Atmospheric rivers in California contribute uh, about 40 to 50 percent of the total precipitation that we get. And you can see here that this contribution depends a lot on the topography. You can see the coastal ranges, the transverse ranges, the Sierra Nevada. Um, and uh, uh, this is key because uh, atmospheric rivers are pretty stable conditions. It doesn't really rain out over the ocean that much. They don't have uh, a strong mechanism for uplifting and cooling down that, that moisture and condensing it. Uh, they rely on topography um, so that when, when this stream of moist air encounters topography uh, and is forced to raise over it, then precipitation is squeezed out of these uh, meteorological features. And uh, by the way, uh, the results that, that I was just showing were produced by uh, my colleague Tamara Shulgina, who 
is from a place where no atmospheric river has ever made landfall and uh, most likely never will in the middle of the largest continent on Earth, right here in Tomsk, Russia. Here's what an atmospheric river is defined as in the glossary of uh, uh, meteorology, the American Meteorological Society. It was really our colleague, Marty Ralph, the director of CW3E, who got that definition uh, in there. And um, uh, it's basically, uh, again, a filament of very moist and windy conditions um, that is longer than it is wide, and uh, uh, they are related to mid-latitude cyclones a lot of the time, but not every mid-latitude cyclone is associated with an atmospheric river, and not every atmospheric river is associated with a mid-latitude cyclone. But basically, uh, these atmospheric rivers, they're anywhere between three to six or seven of them around the globe at any particular time. They transport in water vapor the equivalent of uh, several Mississippi rivers uh, instantaneously. Uh, and of course, they're ephemeral, so they can last for a few days, but they wiggle and whip around quite a lot. Um, the topography of California is pretty much ideally oriented to squeeze moisture out of these <clears throat> features that, that bring in moisture from <clears throat> the west-southwest uh, direction, typically from the southwest, but again, their orientation at landfall can differ quite a bit and does so, for example, with El Nino and La Nina cycles. Uh, but um, these features are associated with most of the flood damages in the west uh, and especially along the coast. So here's a recent paper um, by our colleague Tom Coringham, who is uh, an economist, and he actually looks at the economic impacts of the extreme weather events uh, that we study. And so uh, looking at flood damages from the National Insurance Database, uh, he, uh, he made this uh, uh, result that shows that, for example, in Northern California coastal region, 99% of all the flood damages are related to atmospheric rivers. In Southern California, it's over 80%, and um, uh, around the entire West, it's, um, uh, it's also about 80% or so. So um, atmospheric rivers cause a lot of the extreme events that are associated with floods. They also contribute a heck of a lot to our uh, water resources, but basically they, they have benefits and they have risks associated with them. Uh, and most of the precipitation they produce is coastal and orographic, meaning uh, that it's really squeezed out by the mountain ranges of the region. So, what is the role of atmospheric rivers in this enhancement of the precipitation extremes that, that all the models show? Uh, we've applied the same automated atmospheric river detection methodology to 16 global climate models. Uh, and, and we looked at uh, uh, landfalling atmospheric river activity 
um, along the coast of California. Uh, and uh, uh, basically, I don't want to belabor this uh, plot again to the details of it, but we've looked at different uh, uh, variables like the frequency of atmospheric rivers uh, in the past, in the future, and the change, as well as uh, other uh, variables, the most important for extreme precipitation being uh, the average maximum integrated vapor transport or or uh, potency of AR uh, events. And uh, I'm going to show you results from these models, especially focusing on the five most realistic models highlighted here. Uh, and uh, again, uh, I won't get into the details how we assess the realism of these models, but uh, it basically had to do with uh, validating them for their ability to reproduce the seasonal cycle of atmospheric river landfalls uh, along the west coast of North America, uh, as well as the contribution of atmospheric rivers to total annual precipitation. And uh, by calling the models like that, we're actually able to reduce the uncertainty of the 16 uh, models uh, to produce uh, uh, results that are uh, more clear and uh, uh, these are described in this uh, red curve here which shows the average of the five most realistic models uh, and what we're showing here is the maximum potency of AR events that is related to extreme precipitation. And you can see uh, that the maximum intensity of ARs is projected to increase. Uh, the trend really emerges from uh, the background variability around the beginning of the 21st century, pretty much as we speak, and accelerates uh, into uh, later and towards the end of the 21st century, according to the business-as-usual um, climate projection. So, as atmospheric rivers get stronger, uh, how does that impact the uh, contribution of atmospheric rivers to total annual precipitation? So, here's a plot that I showed you earlier, and this is the historical contribution of atmospheric rivers to uh, total annual precipitation now in these five most realistic uh, global climate models. Uh, and it's very similar to the observed uh, map that I showed you before. Again, about 50 to 60% contribution in Northern California, uh, less so in Southern California, but you can see how, how the largest contributions are very coastal. Uh, this is the same result for um, the end of the 21st century, or the second half of the 21st century. And you can see that the contribution of atmospheric rivers to total precipitation increases. Uh, and this is the difference. So this, this is the change. Uh, so that increase in the contribution of ARs to total annual precipitation is projected to be 
um, about between 15 and 25, uh, 15 and 20% for most of California. So we can now uh, take results from these uh, five most realistic models uh, and uh, repeat the analysis that I showed you before, which basically looked at changes of uh, precipitation, uh, in that case for all of California in these different intensity bins that shows a decrease uh, in precipitation frequency, but an increase in the extreme events in California. And now we can focus on um, three river basins, uh, Chehalis, uh, in uh, Washington, uh, the Russian in uh, Northern California, and the Santa Ana River in Southern California. All three of these are flood-prone coastal rivers. And, um, and you can see uh, a repeat of this California-wide analysis now uh, for these three river basins. Uh, these dots basically show the same information as I had shown in that previous figure. It's basically the changes, the projected changes in the frequency of precipitation in these different intensity bins. Uh, dry, uh, zero precipitation, so this increases a little bit by 9%, the frequency of dry days. But then the frequency of sort of low and medium intensity precipitation days decreases, that's those black dots, uh, and then the frequency of uh, heavy and extreme events increases. And you can see this pattern in all three of these coastal rivers uh, spanning uh, the latitudinal range of uh, uh, the, the uh, U.S. West Coast. Uh, and now we have also separated these results into atmospheric river-related precipitation and all the other precipitation, precipitation from the other storms. Um, and uh, what, what we can see is that the decrease, let's look at the Russian River, uh, the decrease uh, projected for uh, medium intensity precipitation is mostly due to non-atmospheric river events. Atmospheric rivers actually try to uh, try to make uh, are, are in the projections making uh, even medium intensity precipitation a little bit more frequent. But on the whole, uh, it's the non-AR events that are responsible for uh, for the decrease in kind of average uh, intensity precipitation. But then it's the atmospheric rivers, the dark shades, that are responsible almost entirely for the increase in the extreme precipitation uh, frequency that, that we see in, uh, in uh, these five very most realistic models. And actually that's the case in, in the other models as well. So we can say that atmospheric rivers are responsible for, for this increase uh, in, uh, uh, in precipitation extremes, whereas all the other events, which in this part of the world are, are basically uh, mid-latitude cyclones, frontal cyclones, cold fronts, uh, are responsible for the decrease in uh, average precipitation um, frequency. I mean, 
precipitation frequency for average intensity precipitation. And this really uh, happens, this decrease in precipitation uh, frequency happens because uh, all the models, as well as the, as the observations, show that, that the subtropics are expanding. And these Mediterranean regions all over the world that basically sit between the subtropics and the mid-latitudes, uh, they have dry subtropical summers, and almost all of their precipitation is produced by mid-latitude storms in winter. Uh, in, in these Mediterranean regions, as the subtropical cells expand uh, due to the polar amplified uh, global warming, uh, the summers become longer and uh, the wintertime mid-latitude storms get pushed out of these regions. And these decreases mostly occur in the shoulder seasons of fall and spring, whereas the increases in extreme precipitation occur at the peak of winter. So we can see how this... Uh, very specific uh, change that's composed of two competing signals, uh, less frequent but more intense precipitation. How does that uh, impact the volatility of the hydroclimate that I started this talk with? Uh, and uh, again, here I show um, a map that's similar to the one I started this talk with, basically shows uh, the standard deviation of year-to-year -year, uh, precipitation divided by the annual mean uh, precipitation. So basically, variability, year-to-year -year variability relative to uh, the normal annual total amounts. And you can see, again, in, especially in Southern California, desert regions, year-to-year um, -year variability normally, historically, amounts to about 50-60% uh, uh, of the total annual normal rainfall. Uh, and this is again from those five most realistic models. Uh, and uh, uh, in the rest of California, the variability is very high too. It's, it's around 40% of the annual total. And uh, here uh, we show the volatility of, uh, um, of our hydroclimate in the second half of the 21st century. Uh, and here's the difference. So uh, it's really in these regions that are very prone to precipitation from atmospheric rivers, uh, and especially in the regions where precipitation is already infrequent in the southern part of the state, where we see the largest increases in uh, uh, in the volatility, the uncertainty of our hydroclimate and, uh, by extension, our water resources. So um, I uh, would like to uh, end this part of the talk uh, about the science of atmospheric rivers um, with a summary. And, um, uh, you know, but really understanding the mechanisms of change that we see in the climate models provide us more information, more detail 
in terms of what to expect. And so, for example, if, if we know that it's the atmospheric rivers that are responsible for the increase in extreme events um, and the other types of storms responsible for, uh, for the decrease in the frequency of precipitation, uh, we, we can say something about snowpack, for example, uh, because, because atmospheric rivers are already warm storms. They're getting more potent because they're getting even warmer. And so uh, in, in warmer air, uh, these near-saturated uh, filaments that are atmospheric rivers can carry even more moisture. Uh, and the relationship between saturation vapor pressure, the amount of moisture that the air can hold, and temperature uh, is nonlinear. It's, uh, uh, so, so the increase in uh, vapor content uh, changes uh, much more than the temperature itself. Um, so for small increase of, uh, in temperature, you get uh, saturated conditions become much wetter. And uh, um, this has implications for all kinds of uh, aspects of our um, environment, including snowpack, like I mentioned, uh, as well as um, wildfire. I'm happy to talk about that if there are questions, but I don't have time to, to get into all of these details uh, here wrapping up. But basically, uh, the main takeaways are that our very volatile uh, hydroclimate, uh, which is really so variable because precipitation is so infrequent uh, in this region, is becoming even more volatile as uh, uh, as that precipitation becomes even less frequent, but the and and more and more of the annual total depends on that one, two, three big storms of the year, uh, and so uh, it also becomes more challenging to manage um, because the breakdown between atmospheric uh, rivers and precipitation in general is, is changing from from beneficial events that uh, uh, that feed into our moisture supply to damaging events that cause um, flood risk. Uh, and so uh, as water resource management becomes more challenging, uh, we really uh, need better prediction of atmospheric rivers on all time scales from seasonal to uh, long lead and weather uh, forecast timescales. And that is something that uh, um, we are contributing to, uh, to, to this uh, effort to do just that at CW3. These projections are more than just projections. And uh, uh, our very recent results were, where, we, where we looked at the enhanced the 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 changes uh, or the impact of of climate change on precipitation from from a specific atmospheric river, we we specifically looked at at the atmospheric river that triggered uh, the crisis at Oroville Dam uh, almost three years ago. Uh, the rainfall from that particular 
atmospheric river was boosted by about 10% by climate change already. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and that caused to uh, damage to the uh, emergency and main spillways and resulted in almost 200,000 people being evacuated due to flood risk downstream. The dam did not break, uh, luckily, but uh, there was a very real possibility at that time. Uh, neither did the emergency spillway right here, but, um, uh, but they were certainly damaged and they uh, required an investment of over a billion dollars to, to fix those damages. Now, in the future, the same atmospheric river events would produce a lot more intense precipitation, uh, which may make a difference between these types of structures being uh, damaged or failing completely. I'd like to finish on an artistic note, and uh, uh, it's really motivated by, by the desire to convey these and other uh, results on uh, basically climate change impacts on the kinds of things that that we care about, uh, like our hydroclimate. So here is a atmospheric river's globe, a structure that's about five feet in diameter, uh, standing outside of Nuremberg Hall, where I work, and where uh, CW3, the center devoted to the study of atmospheric rivers, is housed. This globe is made from metal and glass, uh, and it's all made from recycled materials. Uh, the continents are made out of bicycle sprockets, and um, atmospheric moisture, which is very realistically distributed around the globe, um, is made out of bottoms of bottles. Uh, and here is an atmospheric river right here, making landfall at the coast of California. I know it's hard to see on this picture, but uh, I certainly encourage you to, to come out behind Nuremberg Hall and, and take a look at it. This uh, sculpture was made by Oscar Romo, uh, a local artist who worked uh, in collaboration with scientists uh, to, to create this atmospheric river's globe. Um, and he made uh, atmospheric rivers out of uh, bottoms of bottles that were found in an actual river, in the Tijuana River, which is very much impacted by atmospheric river-generated rainfall. Um, it certainly is a conversation piece, and it's, it's bringing people at Scripps together that, that typically uh, don't uh, uh, interact uh, directly about science. Uh, and uh, it's an example of art which which is uh, generating collaborations interest from uh, our visitors and and helping us explain uh, the results of the science that we do and um, it is part of a new uh, scripts art collection that's basically art inspired by the science that's done at scripts here are some examples of, uh, of the other installations in this collection, uh, which will be uh, official 
uh, soon, but but here's a, a web page uh, where you can go and, and read about it and, and see the other installations. But basically, this art, uh, which for now is mostly climate change related, um, helps us to explain the connections between human activity, global climate change, uh, if you look closely, you may recognize this character <clears throat> um, that's uh, has been trying to mess with the uh, with the environment for the last four years, uh, and um, uh, and then how the global climate change translates to the very local and regional and the most local of all the impacts, uh, the personal impacts. Uh, specifically public health impacts. So, for example, uh, here is a mosaic by uh, Luna Russell that uh, uh, is entitled Dust. Uh, it's it's made out of uh, materials found in the environment, acorns, uh, shells, uh, well, burned matches, uh, and, uh, um, and it, it shows viscerally how it feels to be parched and hot from uh from from heat waves from drought um and uh here's another mosaic by the same artist called dissolution which represents the impacts of uh atmospheric rivers sea level rise inundation on uh, uh on a human person or if you will on mother nature because art is uh, open to interpretation so uh anyways i uh, am certainly excited about art coming to scripts and um i hope it will help uh brighten up the future for the new generation here's that atmospheric river right here making landfall at the coast of California. Thank you, very nice. Sasha, thank you so much for that wonderful talk. We have a number of uh, questions. I'm going to go ahead and get right to those. There have been several that have actually asked about the relationship between El Nino and La Nina events and atmospheric rivers, especially in Southern California. Can you, can you speak a little bit to that? So people have looked at the frequency of atmospheric river landfalls during El Nino and La Nina and neutral years, and they haven't really found a signal. But when we looked at the orientation of atmospheric rivers at landfall, you know, where they're coming more from the west or from the southwest, um, we do find a pretty clear signal. And uh, uh, during La Nina events, we tend to get atmospheric rivers um, approaching a bringing in the moisture more from a westerly direction, uh, whereas during La Nina years, uh, they tend to come more from, they tend to have more, more of a southerly component to them. And uh, if you think about how the mountains of the region are oriented, uh, you, you can imagine an atmospheric river making landfall in central California, for example, coming from a westerly direction would produce more rainfall in uh, uh, the Northern Sierra and even the, in the Cascades, 
whereas an atmospheric river making landfall at the same location but coming from, uh, more from a uh, from a more southerly direction uh, will produce more rainfall in the transverse ranges and the southern Sierra, which actually contributes to the El Nino and La Nina precipitation uh, anomaly patterns, uh, even from atmospheric rivers that make landfall at the very same locations. Yeah, another topic that seems to be um, of interest, uh, as you might guess, is um, is California water supply. So one of the questions is, since so much of our water comes from Northern California and the Sierra snowpack, how will atmospheric rivers impact snowpack and retention? So uh, atmospheric rivers are warm storms traditionally, and they have higher snow levels uh, than, uh, than uh, mid-latitude cyclones, than uh, frontal storms. Uh, and uh, in the future, those snow levels will rise uh, even higher. So that basically means that there's more runoff from atmospheric rivers uh, because uh, the snow in atmospheric rivers, especially as it gets warmer, is confined high to higher and higher um, altitudes. Uh, and then you get much more uh, runoff uh, from from the lower altitudes during a time when... Um, uh, you know, people who are operating dams, uh, reservoirs, are trying to retain the water. And so uh, for atmospheric river storms, uh, reservoir operators are actually forced, uh, they have to release water from the reservoir to make room for this additional runoff um, that, that comes from atmospheric rivers, which is much greater typically than, than uh, you know, the, the runoff uh, that occurs during uh, colder winter storms. Uh, and um, we can actually see <clears throat> in the uh, data already over the last few decades that uh, uh, snow lines are rising during snow accumulation events from both uh, atmospheric rivers and, and, and uh, mid-latitude cyclones. Uh, but again, the atmospheric rivers just have higher snow lines to begin with. What does your research indicate about how California reservoirs should modify their maximum probable flood, which is used in dam safety calculations? There are other people at CW3 that, that work a lot on this, and there's a whole program called FIRO, Forecast Informed Reservoir Operations. Basically, uh, what uh, the current thinking is, is uh, that... Uh, uh, the rules that, that uh, determine the, the operations of the reservoir, how much water can be retained during a certain time of year, need to be more flexible. And they, they should be flexible enough to incorporate uh, forecasts of uh, uh, precipitation, especially that due to atmospheric rivers. And, and uh, um, CW3 is very in actively working on improving those forecasts. Can you talk about the relationship between increasing and more intense atmospheric rivers and increasing wildfire in California? Wildfire has two ingredients in coastal California. Uh, it's uh, uh, a climatic ingredient, which, which is basic, basically antecedent precipitation or lack thereof, uh, which uh, promotes dry and flammable fuels. Uh, mm -hmm. And then uh, the the dry winds, the fire weather, which is you know the our Santa Anas and, and the Diablos of Northern California, the Santa Lucia 
winds in Central California and the sundowners uh, in Santa Barbara and Ventura counties. Uh, and uh, basically, those um, winds, um, they have a similar seasonal cycle to precipitation. I have a slide on that. Here's uh, Hanin, who, who, who did her PhD on Santa Ana winds, and this is Santa Ana wind activity uh, in the observational record. But this is, this is the observed um, seasonality of Santa Ana winds. So you can see that December is really the peak of the Santa Ana wind season, and the Diablos are, are similar in that respect. Santa Ana winds are traditionally associated with wildfire in October because that's when the Santa Ana wind season starts, and that's when the first Santa Anas of, of the season occur before the first rains of winter and after the long dry summer. Uh, and uh, what happens with uh, decreasing frequency of precipitation that mostly occurs in the fall and spring, um, you end up getting a later start to the wet season uh, with, uh, uh, with climate change. And, um, and, and that pretty much pushes the dry fuels out towards the peak of the of the fire weather the the dry wind uh offshore wind season and so then we're more and more likely to get uh wildfires like the thomas fire that occurred in uh, that basically burns through uh most of december uh 2017 and into january 2018 um because there hadn't been any rain until uh, I believe it was January 9th, which was actually an atmospheric river that um, then added insult to injury and, and caused uh, debris flow, deadly debris flows from um, the burn scars of the Thomas fire, which at the time was, was the largest wildfire in Southern, in California history. Now it's only the largest in Southern California history. Uh, but uh, I think that wildfire is a harbinger of uh, of uh, future wildfire activity because with the delayed start of the uh, of the wet season um when you have dry fuels overlapping uh, you know persisting into the peak of the Santa Ana wind season you're more you're more likely to get back to back Santa Ana winds and so if the fire is not put out immediately it can grow much larger than, than historical wildfires. And of course, uh, they're associated with uh, health impacts downstream. You know, the, the, uh, the direct impacts of wildfire are uh, devastating, but, but these wildfires burn in, in the backcountry where not that many people live, but, but the indirect downstream smoke impacts are actually... Uh, maybe even greater because they impact a very large and diverse population at the coast. And here's actually another mosaic by Luna Russell that, that uh, uh, gets at that uh, health impact. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.